Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 Festival. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Declan Fryer. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal peoples, of the Aura and the broader Darug nation. Pay my respect to their elders past and present. And I would like just to take a moment to think about how you personally sit with that knowledge and what that means to you. Thank you. I am here today and very excited to be here with Claire Thomas. She is the author of The Performance. She is a Melbourne writer. Her acclaimed first novel was featured in Blue, which won the Dobby Award for Women Writers and was longlisted for the Miles Franklin Literary Award. She holds a PhD from the University of Melbourne, where she taught literary studies and creative writing for many years. Could we please welcome Claire Thomas? <laughs> and we have Rebecca Starford. Here's her book, The Imitator. She is also the author of Bad Behaviour, a memoir about bullying and boarding school. Uh, the Imitator is about a young female spy at the beginning of World War II. Both are published by Alan Unwin, and she is also the co-founder and publishing director of Kill Your Darlings. She is a former editor at Text Publishing and Affirm Press, and Bad Behaviour is currently in development with Matchbox Pictures for adaptation into a TV series. She recently completed a PhD at the University of Queensland. Welcome, Rebecca Stafford. Thank you. <laughs> I will begin, Rebecca, by asking, uh, this is set, it's a historical novel mm -hmm. set in the 1930s. Tell me, how do you inhabit a period like the 1930s? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, I think I began uh, the research process by doing what I think a lot of writers do, and that's reading, reading a lot of material from that period, whether it was fiction, diaries, historical documentation. Um, one of the wonders of the internet is that you can look up um, so many um, archival materials. Um, I did write this book before COVID, thankfully, because that enabled me to travel, <laughs> travel overseas. Um, and I went to London and I spent uh, quite a lot of time there and some other locations in the UK that the book, that, that the book includes. I suppose as much as possible immersing myself in place, you, you can't immerse yourself in time, um, except imaginatively. So, you know, I, I did a lot of research into things I hadn't previously thought about, a lot of clothing, a lot of food. There's a hell of a lot of drinking and smoking um, in this book. Um, I, had to, I had to edit a lot of that out, actually, because people were just chaining it, which is, you know, historically accurate, but also how many cigarettes can, can one woman smoke? Um, I actually got very hungry reading the book. There's yes. a lot of food scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I wrote a lot of the book, you know, large parts of the book when I was pregnant. So perhaps there's that kind of food <laughs> cravings, wanting to drink, maybe wanting to smoke. Um, not even a smoker. So um, those are those strange cravings, I guess. Um, listening to music as well was also really evocative as well. So, so trying to kind of place yourself within that period um, and evoke both a character 
you know, who is a product of this time. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how our, you know, how we created our characters. But for them to sound authentic as, as much as possible and to, and to have that historical resonance and authenticity, hopefully, as much as possible on the page. I would ask you to, um, Claire, I found when I read the performance, this interiority and this habitation of three characters set during a Samuel Beckett play over the duration, and you spent a lot of time in their heads. Was it ever dawning to really spend so much time on the page over the course of a whole novel, three characters, one play, and really delve into their mental states? Did you ever wonder if you were going to run out of sort of time to inhabit these heads? No. I, I feel that any interior world is infinitely complex and rich for, you know, writing. And uh, I sort of inhabited them one after another and I wrote it in order in that, in that way. And I got very in whichever woman I was in at the time. And then the, the, the sort of adjustment to the next character in the next chapter, that was a bit daunting. But then I kind of was like, oh, I'm back. And I, um, I was talking to um, another writer about this. It's kind of almost like um, you, you're kind of a spirit and you're entering into the, to the bodies one after the other. And um, there, there was sort of so many triggers. So I found the constraints of both their physical constraints and the artistic constraint and the time constraint, I found all of those constraints uh, paradoxically very freeing and liberating because you can think whatever you want and so that's what happened. But I... And I also uh, was very concerned in remembering that they were bodies. I didn't want it to be completely cerebral because it, it is almost all their interior lives. Uh, but I tried to sort of have the bodies present in the space within the theatre, but also just what they were thinking. There's a lot of bodily fluids that are not properly contained, not necessarily in the theatre space. There's some tears that come out that, that are uh, unexpected. But, and so there's a lot of that. So to kind of counter the kind of intensity of their thinking. I loved the er intensity <laughs> of their thinking. <laughs> and there was one sentence in particular. Um, I love a, a book called uh, Suppose a Sentence by Brian Dillon, Fitzcarraldo Editions, that published it. And there was a sentence here where I really saw it go on for almost half a page. This is one single sentence. And I think it's a good example of how uh, we have a character, Margot, who is in her 70s. Yep, early yep. 70s, yes. Yep. And she seems to be a certain character type. And you could imagine her representing something if you just saw her with no knowledge of her inner world. Mm -hmm. And yet we learn as the book goes on that there are dark things happening in her private life, things that are uncomfortable, things that are maybe a bit violent. And we get this sentence, this is a single sentence, perhaps because she was sexually possessive of John, Margot had elaborate fantasies for many years about mm -hmm. being cheated on and the precise ways she would discover his infidelity. Handwritten notes revealing kinky sexual quirks, the proverbial lipstick on the collar, a frank conversation with a mutual acquaintance, I think you need to know what's been going on. And then the revenge moments she could enact. 
the destruction of favoured clothes, art objects or books, the placement of a sliver of sardine inside his suit pocket, the rubbing of his toothbrush around a toilet rim in the hope he might get gastro. (laughs) And the delicious, the sentence continues, and the delicious, enlivening, moral high ground she could occupy as she explained to him what a terrible cliché he was, what an unimaginative middle-aged doctor, what a weak fool, but how, even though she was betrayed and heartbroken, she might be able to forgive him eventually, depending on the extent of the illicit relationship, the person involved, and how many others were aware of his betrayal. Go ahead. <laughs> Do you have a moment where you go, wow, I've done it. You know, this is the Nobel. I've written the sentence. Oh, I mean, how does, that, how does that sentence come, come along? I'd love to know. I, I did enjoy listening to that. <laughs> um, I haven't, apart from my audio uh, book, I haven't heard many other people reading anything. So that was interesting. Um, <laughs> What do you mean? Was I like high-fiving myself when I got to the end of the sentence? Is that, well, how do you I, construct it? Or is there a sense, I, not saying you're high-fiving yourself, but how do you get into the moment where you can construct a sentence like that that reveals so much in, uh, in one line? Probably by not revealing much for a very long time. So I, I, I didn't write or, or I... And I read. I've just been... I'm, I read and read and read and read. And, and so... There was a lot kind of in me that I was excited to be able to write. And the actual writing of it was once I started, because I, I, I had the idea and I didn't do it, but once I started, the actual writing process was quite a joy. And I, the kind of that sort of syntax and the, the tone stuff, I, it, it was an organic process, Declan. It's good to hear. Yeah, I couldn't, I mean, I didn't sort of go, now I'm going to write a big sentence or it was just the voice. And Margot, you said she's got a certain authority and even her first chapter is more authoritative than, you know, it starts to dissipate and break down as the book progresses. And I think that's done on the level of the sentence with all of them. There's a moment in uh, The Imitator, actually, where we also get this notion of performance. And we see Evelyn and she says, it didn't sound all that different from how Evelyn had behaved at Raheen, hiding who she really was and what she really thought and adopting the manners and attitudes of those around her. It was a performance, (laughs) nothing more complicated than that. And she had an instinct for this kind of disguise. I noticed you, and I assume there wasn't collaboration on these books per se, but um, it is interesting. I think some people who may be familiar with your debut about boarding school um, might feel there is a thread that runs through both these books, Mm. but it is translated into something historical. Was that, I don't know, were you ever afraid of, again, coming back and inhabiting a world that was distant from you? What did you take from the experience of the memoir that you could apply to fiction? Yeah, um, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think often you're not aware of threads if, if they exist in your work until I think a lot later and sometimes they're point, not even, you know, you're not aware of them, they might need to be pointed out to you. But, you know, as I began working on the novel, it was apparent that, that you know, I was again interested in this idea of searching for belonging, possibly in the wrong sorts of places and, and you know, that kind of perennial is, um, issue of what is identity and what what is it to be, um, you know, 
in this case, a young woman. Um, in the case of the memoir, um, a teenage, a teenage girl. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess again, it was just something that kind of occupied my my imagination. I didn't really intend the, the passage that you read out talks about Evelyn's internal transformation. She begins her life. Um, she has humble upbringings. Um, she is a scholarship girl and that, that elevates her socially um, into a new world. And this, this schooling experience in her education enables her to meet people that um, provide connections later and es essentially that uh, enables her to, to find work at MI5 when she's eventually recruited uh, connections she wouldn't have ordinarily had. But when she's at school, uh, she is an outsider. She doesn't really fit neatly. Uh, she's teased about her accent um, and about her humble origins. And she makes a really conscious decision um, when she's a teenager to either try to kind of go against the grain and to remain sort of true to herself um, or to adopt the attitudes and the behaviours of the other girls around her. And that's when she begins this, this performance, this, this imitation um, and as the novel sort of explores, that enables her to, to make her all of these steps through her career and, and, and develop the storyline. But she, her interiority is somewhat underdeveloped, shall we say, and her kind of moral, um, her moral core is, is a little weak. It's interesting that you say her interiority is underdeveloped because another thing that struck me is as a contemporary writer, you have that opportunity when you go into um, history to add things that weren't necessarily available to the authors of the day. And I was reminded there's uh, one section where we say, uh, Evelyn edged her fingers down to the soft, warm part of her. She hesitated, her pulse quickening, and continued stroking herself. So she's masturbating. And essentially, that's not something that would have been available to authors in the day, but uh, I mean, it's very much a feminist act. I think it is honouring the reality that that is what people do and did. And it's not something that could have been said at the time. Was that something conscious? Um, I mean, that's the only scene of masturbation in the book. I should just say, this is not a race. He's just gone straight there. No, <laughs> well, just like, oh the reason, and it's, and it's nothing prurian, I swear, it's essentially that um, in both women's books, many critics have observed that it is uh, female consciousness or women characters are central. And I think at the time, it's not something that necessarily could have been written down. I mean, I genuinely think it was yeah, you know, I mean, even a single passage. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, there's the, there's the opportunity as a historical novelist to, to be revisionist in, the, in you know, what you're writing about, particularly with, with female experience. I mean, that scene, it's more designed to demonstrate to the reader that Evelyn has a lot of trouble emoting. She's not a particularly physically affectionate person either. She's not even comfortable masturbating, really. So she's she's got a lot of things that she's processing. And I think even in a historical context, there is that sense that, that she is thwarted in her development. Um, and that is a reflection of how she relates to other people as well. And, um, you know, that scene reflects some other moments in her life where she has these opportunities to make romantic connections with people and, and just can't quite um, bring herself um, to, to make those steps and to move towards those particular people for the reasons that are revealed sort of throughout the book. Mm. Mm. Speaking of revisionism, we live in a time where, as Ivy, who's a younger character in um, the performance, observes... Um, it's embarrassing to have certain dead white men on your wall and she has a poster of Samuel Beckett 
And she did have. She did have. <laughs> in her youth, yes. She's early 40s. Early 40s. <laughs> yep. And at the time, um, Ivy pulled down her SB, her Samuel Beckett picture, after a further year of tertiary education, bloated with critical theory. Once the idea of idolising a dead white man had become too embarrassing to have on public display. There's a lot in this novel and the character of Ivy of the idea of a performance, of places that are cool, of people who are not cool, yep. and this kind of binary. Um, are you sympathetic to that idea at all? Is it a genuine struggle, do you think, for artists who are trying to find themselves reflected, or is it something... So what the binary, that you, what's the binary? The idea of uh, dead white men and essentially what we can take from them or what we should leave from them. Yeah, I'm definitely not interested in the idea of dead white men, apart from, yeah... Um, so, th well, you say you're not interested in the idea of dead white men, but you, you, I mean, you mentioned as an author also that uh, there was a gap between this and the debut, yeah, and you felt that even a white woman, yes, you were not sure about the idea of or do we need another book from another white woman, yeah, but you wrote the book anyway. Uh, yeah, I did. Okay, so tell me about that. That, that well, no, we probably question. don't need it, and yet here we are. Yeah. Um. So. Posturing. So, so okay. I can't go on, I'll, I will well, go Well, I'll on. tell you. For, so for, why did you go on? Well, I didn't go on for a very long time. And I was hung up about my subject position. And as you say, I, I was like, the world does not need another book by an overeducated white woman. And, and that was, you know, I just felt I was all wrong and unnecessary. And that's how I felt. But I still had this dogged drive to write. I still love books more than anything in the world. I still wanted to contribute to that universe. And so I felt like I didn't have an option. I could, but what I got to eventually was I can keep on with the self-flagellation and the kind of stuckness, or I can actually use that stuff, use that material, like interrogate the things that I'm uncomfortable with. So interrogate... Um, being an overeducated white woman, all the characters are aware of their, well, they're different, but so rather than like deflecting it um, or denying the discomfort, actually making the art about that. And that's what has happened, I think. And it's true. I mean, you do think through on the page, there is uh, the character of Summer, she, yep. It's hinted that she has a, a non-white identity, essentially. It's not clear exactly what. Yep. Tell me about how you felt about writing that. Was that something difficult? Um, I felt that the conception of this book was becoming a, a sort of commentary on Australian womanhood, a multi-generational sort of thing in some way, and I was kind of thinking about that, and I wanted to have... Well, I, I, I didn't want to write about Australia and not acknowledge the Indigenous aspect of Australia, but I wasn't going to go full Lionel Shriver on anyone, ever. Um, so I started to think about Summer and her mother and I wanted to kind of have... So her mother uh, is a white woman and a well-meaning one, but she will not tell Summer anything about her biological father. And I wanted that to be a comment on the erasure that white Australia 
has embodied. There's a passage in The Imitator where uh, it talks about Evelyn and her mother. And I found this quite interesting, this dynamic where Evelyn feels she's inhabiting herself she's not entirely comfortable with and she uses that as a spy and is based on a real-life um, figure. Mm-hmm. But you go down, I mean, most of the novel is not really a, a spy novel in any James Bond, girl, boy's own adventure sense. It's really a human drama. And part of that I found quite interesting. I, I really love this part. It says um, Evelyn's with her mother and she has this sense that her parents are from a background that is limited. It is that sense of, um, I suppose, in pre-war fiction, you have this story of the child from the provinces comes up a la Pip in Great Expectations or the protagonist of Les Rouges et les Noirs by Stendhal where they come up from the provinces and they get experience. And that's the experience of um, Evelyn. But she says, Evelyn wished she could shake some courage into her mother and into herself to push past these limits of imagination. Each had created a part in the other's life they had no idea how to play. There was so much Evelyn wanted to say, so much she wanted to ask, but a rigid, unyielding wall had sprung up between them. And this felt like a grief to Evelyn as her mother turned back to the sink as if she had lost something that could never be replaced. Where does that come from? How do, how do these scenes come about? Because I just found this interesting. It felt very personal, but I wasn't sure if it was something that was pursued in, more in the book or not. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the dynamic of the family situation draws on, on some personal elements in, in a sense of, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I guess bad behaviour is, a, to go back to my first book, um, and the threads, if, if they exist, is about a young girl, me, who, like Evelyn, gets a scholarship to go to a school that she wouldn't ordinarily go to, and class plays a huge role in that. We like to think that class doesn't exist in Australia, but we are a really stratified, you know, society in that respect. And obviously Britain in pre-war times, um, you know, class, still to this day, of course, class, um, you know, completely controls the movement um, of society. Um, and Evelyn has the opportunity to shift outside of her class, but at least for her personally, she never really comes to inhabit this, this, the upper, upper echelons of society, even though she's moving in those circles. Yeah, I mean, the fraught nature of her relationship with her mother, that's something I kind of, I, um, you know, that's a shifting, shifting space for me. Um, and yeah, I can draw on those feelings. I think we all know what it feels like to... You know, that changing relationship with your parents, whether it's your mother or your father, um, as you're on the cusp of adulthood is incredibly fraught. Um, and I think for many people, I think in, in maybe in more respects, that's a relationship that perhaps mirrored the one I had, my, my mother had with her own mother, where education played a huge role in that and opportunities that were available to my mother and her generation were not available to my grandmother. And somehow there's that mingling of, of pride and happiness, presumably, from, you know, the older generation. There's resentment, there's a bit of confusion, and the relationship is kind of forever changed by those opportunities as well. Evelyn doesn't know really at that point in the novel how to relate to her parents. She feels a bit embarrassed by her class. And she looks at her mother and she sees someone who has not lived a life um, at least one that she would like to live herself. Um, parents in the novel play a small role, but I think an important one in understanding Evelyn 
And what motivates her, and I think what frightens her as well, it's a life that she doesn't want to return to. And once she goes away to school and once she begins her work during the war, that relationship with her parents is, is changed and she can't go back. She can't easily return to the home and to the safety, which I think many of us have felt, you know, when we were younger in particular, that, that the home is a place where you can return and normality is sort of resumed. Nothing can go back to what it was. And her parents are quite wary of her too because they sense that change. And so that's what I was trying to play upon. And I think it's, I found it quite a sad aspect of their, of their relationship. Mm, I agree there's a lot of pathos in that idea you can't go back, that your community or your parents may want you to achieve certain things, mm. but with the knowledge that when you do, there is a loss, mm. you can't go back. Tell me a bit more about that, because I think that's really interesting. I think that is, it's an undercurrent in both books. I mean, do you feel that that is a real thing? I mean, it sounds like you do. Uh, what are the implications of that? Is there any way around that, I suppose? Well, I think if you're talking about, um, you know, from a personal perspective, um, you know, I don't really want to talk too much about my own personal circumstances. Um, my previous book has done that a lot. And, I mean, the, you know, Bad Behaviour talks about the estrangement I had from my mother in particular um, in my early 20s um, when I came out as being gay and she was unable... Um, for various reasons to to accept that. I, I'm happy to, to kind of announce that, you know, we have reconciled um, and that we have a, a good, as good a relationship, I think, that, that can be expected from two quite different people. But there was always love there. It was just the relationship itself had kind of broken. There is this character, Vincent, too. It's well, it's implied very early on that he is gay. Yes. And it's revealed to Evelyn. And again, you have that chance to talk about this from a contemporary consciousness in the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, Vincent also plays a small but central role. He's Evelyn's colleague in the book. And as well as revealing Evelyn is the first person that he can tell about being gay at this time, obviously, you know, it was kind of completely um, socially unacceptable and illegal, but they develop a close um, friendship. In many ways, that is the closest relationship she has during the course of her time working in the intelligence service. But um, Vincent is also a character who enables Evelyn to have another educational experience, and that is that real human reckoning of, of the realities of the war. So much of the book, Evelyn's just sort of having a kind of you know, kind of intellectual um, engagement with what's happening abroad through the, her intelligence work. And Vincent um, reveals to her what happened to his family in Germany. And it's, um, you know, it, 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 it has a kind of devastating, obviously it's completely devastating for him, but Evelyn, it can kind of completely turns her understanding and her perspective um, on its head. I noticed, Claire, that there is, or I mentioned in both books, I really feel a strong sense of what gets lost as part of progress. And you have this background in the performance where the bushfires are burning. I think it's something maybe people will know before they come to the book. But it gets more subtle even than that. It's, it's something, for example, with Ivy. I don't think we've talked about Ivy so much yet. And there's a lot of pathos with... I hope I'm not giving anything away. Uh, yeah. There is a, a lost child. Yep. And uh, there's this moment where she reflects that 
Just as her lost child will not age, neither does her grief. The sorrow does not feel many years old. It hasn't matured or lost intensity. When she feels that it floods her as it always has, despite the facts, despite the years, despite the professionals, despite the improved spouse and their perfect new son. I feel that there's that change in the sentence where at first it's the idea of flooding and the facts in the years, it's very plangent, but then we get the idea of the improved spouse and the perfect new son and the way the contemporary world tells you to always be optimising. Is that yeah. something you're interested in, the kind of, yeah, the pressure of the contemporary world not to feel grief or loss? Yeah, I think um, that's very much a train of thought, that, that little bit that you read, that it's real and then the kind of the bullshit comes at the end mm. that she's... That she bullshit hears. always comes. Yeah, exactly. And and that's hard to... Um, she can't just have the, the sad feeling. She's doing the reassuring to herself. Like, she's... It's a habit. It's a practice. Yeah, but, so the question about optimising, I think there is a pressure to, you know, to adopt a sense of false positivity about a lot of things where I think it's very valuable to actually dwell in the difficult stuff sometimes and that can be uh, very productive and very germinating and, and in terms of writing as well. Um, there are those little moments of deflection but they're, yeah, that's the outside kind of noise coming to her that she should be over it because everything's fine. Well, do you yeah. think it is something... Well, it sounds like you think it's unhealthy that essentially the intrusion of the contemporary world that says we can't be sad, we can't yeah. pay attention. I mean, many people during COVID said yeah. that idea of let's not go back, let's sit with mm. this stasis. Let's use that as yeah. an opportunity to what actually revolutionise everything. Yep. Down with capitalism, down, down with, yeah, yep. I know, there was a moment of glorious hope, wasn't yeah. there? <laughs> um, yes. I think that's a that's a that's a much sort of broader scale. But yeah, I think that um, refusing to be honest about difficulty is not a way to go, in my view. And and in terms of the characters in the performance, that's been an ongoing problem for them all. And some are manifest that as well. This kind of cheery colour blindness of her mother is just futile, and it's mindless because she will, she won't interrogate the reality um so there's a lot of different inflections of that broader kind of notion throughout the book mm. what about in situations where i mean she worries herself that she's making a mountain out of a molehill yeah and we're suggesting that that's okay but i wonder also there is a reality that trauma does take away something and it does mean that perhaps you can't face something. Uh, is that something you just accept? Is it okay to accept, I guess, the inability to face things, to actually say, I can't actually look at this? Well, exactly. You have to be functional to some extent. So, yes, it's grappling with that balance. Um, and she's got the mountain out of a molehill thing, it's, the, the trauma distorts and trauma um, hovers. And so as much as she's genuinely thrilled with her, she's got a young baby, she's besotted and it's a very kind of unproblematic, joyful mothering relationship in that particular instance. Um, 
but it will always have the counterpoint of this trauma. It just, it just will. And there isn't an answer. There's not sort of a perfect way of being, and, and this is the mess of their minds as well. I mean, how they operate in the world is different to how they operate in their own looped, often, thinking. Mm. Do you think... Uh, I mean, we have the Beckett play. There is a sense that you yeah. are certainly draw upon modernism. There's a dog named Wolf. Get it? Virginia Woolf. Wolf, yeah, very fun. And basically, um, I got this sense that there would be... Do you think there was more space? It seems obvious to us, but more space to, to simply sit with things, to not have to optimise or make something of it in uh, the time when the modernists wrote and they were interrogating interiority. I mean, to do this thing where we go in a social realist mode, it's a big question, but in a social realist mode to, to inhabit a consciousness, yep. uh, it seems both old-fashioned but also brave. Mm-hmm. If you're comparing me to Virginia Woolf, look, <laughs> um, I have nothing to say <laughs> other than she's a brilliant genius. Um, I'm not quite... so. You, so essentially the idea that, well, Virginia Woolf wouldn't have had necessarily the same pressures to optimise the I pressures... Don't, I don't think that's um, a dominant force in the performance. I think that's, that's an occasional glimmer, but I wouldn't um, say that that's a big part of the way that they think. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, yeah, it comes up a bit, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, hmm. a prevailing... Mode. Did you draw upon modernism to write at all or did you have any authors in mind when you were writing this to draw upon this style of interiority in the um, characters? I would, yes, of course. I mean, I've read very widely and historically and contemporary writers. Um, I would say the only writer that I literally sort of was analysing on the level of the sentence was Virginia Woolf. And there's a Beckian, you know, they're watching a Samuel Beckett play. He also wrote a lot of prose. There's, there's certain kind of little glimmers of influence of, of not his plays, but his prose in there. But um, no, I think it was just all previously absorbed and I was just kind of wringing it out. There's a section here that talks about, um, it actually reminded me, I'll get the page number, but it reminded me of talk therapy. Okay. It reminded me of that idea of um, you don't know what you're going to write until you write it. I'm not sure. What was the initial spark for the, intim the imitator? It was a pretty basic starting point. I've always been interested in female spies and obviously I wanted, you know, if I was to go on to write about one that I'd want to... Um, you know, you talked about the the human drama of the novel. That that was the kind of novel I wanted to write, one that was set within a. You know, I think when you tell people you've written about a spy, often there there you know there are a lot of kind of images and cliches that might kind of spring to mind. It's not an it's not an Ian Fleming novel. Um, it's it's a social. It's a novel about a woman um, at, a, at a particular period of history participating in, you know, quite extraordinary events, but it's very much a character portrait of her and how her life kind of collides with these events and, and particular characters who are bound directly or indirectly with, the, with these historical events in London at the time. So, yeah, I wanted to read about... Really, I had that starting, that starting question of, OK, what kind of young woman becomes a spy... Initially, you know, I had ideas, oh, perhaps she'd have to be quite a, I, I don't know what I thought, really extraordinary, really kind of um, 
charismatic and confident and suave and you know, all those sorts of things. Evelyn isn't really those things at all. She's, you know, she's something of a chameleon. She's adaptable. Um, she's, she's, she's like a sponge. She kind of soaks up um, the attitudes and behaviours of those around her, like I mentioned before, but she's so malleable as well but she's intelligent, she's capable. So she has those sorts of qualities. I did actually do a bit of research into the attitudes of military intelligence servicemen about the kinds of women that they'd want to recruit. They sort of had this almost this manual as to, as to those mm. attributes. Like they couldn't be too kind of, um, I'm using contemporary language here, but kind of too sexy or overly sexual because, you know, that would alert um, the subject to, you know, to their intent. But they also had to be warm and um, attractive so to, to kind of cultivate that more, um, the intimacies of a relationship or almost like a friendship. Um, and so her handler, um, who is based on a real person who worked in the agency at the time, when he does his kind of recruit pitch to her when they go out for this opulent lunch, um, he, he sort of talks a little bit about that. He, he's, he knows of Evelyn, he's, he's observed her in the office um, and he kind of has picked her because this guy, the real, the real man, um, was a spymaster. He recruited, he recruited agency and he had a knack um, for, for knowing who could be effective for, for the particular kinds of investigations. Did you reflect on that idea of... I mean, it's so interesting, I think, the idea that Evelyn is a sponge and you've mentioned also how women were recruited and I think there is the idea of... Uh, women, certainly at this time, but also the ongoing problem of representing female interiority, where women are treated as objects or ciphers or kind of interfaces and not people with interiority and an independent life. Um, did that, is that something you reflected on with Evelyn? Because she reflects that both as her character, but also, I suppose, on that larger landscape of being a female character. Yeah, I think so. I think I was conscious, I think, also of the trajectory for Evelyn's career, such as it is in the book. Um, you know, you mentioned before that Evelyn's based on a real person. Um, so I did, during my initial research, I, I came across a young woman named Joan Miller, who, like Evelyn, was recruited when she was about 19 or 20. Um, and she participated in some of the real-life investigations that I um, write about. I, I fictionalise elements of them in the book. Uh, Joan Miller uh, was a really interesting, very, very seemed to be a very different person um, to Evelyn in terms of her in terms of her personality. She wrote a memoir that I got my hands on. I don't think there are many copies still in circulation. She had to have it published in Ireland because the British. Um, the British government wanted to ban the publication of it because she was contravening Official Secrets Act. So I think this book was published in the early 80s. Um, she couldn't get it done in the UK. She went over to Ireland. Shortly after the book uh, was published, Joan Miller's car was run off the road in Spain. Um, so, you know, whether or not that's a grand conspiracy, I don't know. But this, this woman um, sort of presented a really interesting figure outside of my own, you know, use for her as a model in the book. But... Like so many women, and this is what happened with Joan Miller, um, her, her real-life experiences during the war, she worked for a couple of years and then she was discarded. Um, she was kind of booted out of the service. So many women served such important and crucial and quite extraordinary roles across all of the kind of wartime efforts, um, whether it be in the, you know, the intelligence agency or in munitions factories or in hospitals. And when the war finished, 
they were expected to just go back to their lives as, as, as they had been before, and that wasn't working. That was going back to the house, you know, going back to the kitchen, going back to the family, if they had family or to their husband. And their ambitions and their independence um, had kind of been revoked from them. And that, to my mind, that was just really, you know, as an extraordinary situation as Evelyn was involved in those investigations. So that was a current that was kind of feeding my sort of outrage and um, the unfairness of that historical situation for women, which obviously is a well-known, you know, situation historically. But learning what I did about about what these women were doing, it was just extraordinary to me that then they weren't kept on and, and able to, to kind of continue in their, in their roles. Is Evelyn akin to a writer herself as a spy, as a writer, an underground figure who sort of preys upon the real world and then takes that material and puts it in books? Because I found that, that's what I thought of with talk therapy. There's a character who says, I think you put a truth serum in the wine and... She is always living a double life, and I suppose writers do. I mean, do you feel that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think as writers, um, I think we're all observing um, other people. Um, much of much of the observation, much of the the, the human relationships that you have um, in in the world at large, you know, they work their way into your writing, whether you're conscious of that or not. Um, I don't know, Claire. Do you find? Do you find? <laughs> I know that you don't want to talk case? too much about <laughs> the meta process of writing. What about yourself, Claire? Uh, I'm a hyper-aware person. I notice things that other well, things bug me that other people <laughs> don't notice. So that's it, it. That's annoying. And I think that that writing for me is um, actually a way of processing the extraordinary input that you have. If, but I think there are a lot of very observant, hyper-aware people who, who don't uh, make art with their uh, lives. Uh, it might manifest in different ways, but, but for me, um, yeah, making, constructing sentences, making sense of the little, you know, the resonances of the little observations and the little details um, is absolutely like breathing yeah and um inevitably your relationships are going to um you know little parts of them i write fiction and you're you know we're talking about novels here so we've done that on purpose um and that's where i am comfortable with the kind of distancing uh aspect of fiction um that might change but at the moment i i can't I wouldn't, the idea of writing a memoir just like <clears throat> could not, um, would not want to do that because I feel like I'd lose all these things I can do in fiction, but that's just my limited kind of uh, understanding at this stage. Mm. But I feel that there's a real sense of real life experience in this, mm. in this fiction. And yeah, I mean, there was this point where Margot is reflecting on other women, she's becoming self-conscious about some aspect of, of age and femininity. And uh, I'm going to be very masculine here and say that this reminded me of Philip Larkin, a great poem. Uh. No, I, we said we wouldn't mention men. <laughs> yeah. Philip's in the room. So Philip Larkin, he says in um, Dockery and Son, age and the only end of age. And that's really, I just found Margot fascinating, I think, 
her sense of mortality is galvanizing. It's mm-hmm. it's good to remember that you know this sense of memento mori, and um, she's yeah she's definitely driven. But I think she's been. I don't think that's a function of her age. I think she's been a, a, a driven person her whole life, and you can have a sense of mortality and be twelve, mm-hmm. um, and that and I suppose it. The longer you are alive, the, the more complex that becomes, and that's certainly the case with Margot. And and also the more uh, she's quite entrenched in her life. Um, she, she's been operating in. She's a professor at a university, and she's been operating in that kind of zone her whole adult life. Um, so, yeah, but she but she's very resistant to the idea of retirement, and that could be because that would be a step closer to death. Yeah. Or it could just be a lack of imagination of another way to live. Or it could be the fact that she's got too much still to think about and she's not ready. So, um, yeah, she's she deals with her ageing in, in, in lots of different ways. She also hates this thing of, like, you know, older women being invisible. She's like, if I have to read another opinion piece that's going on about the invisibility of older women, I will scream. And because, again, that's such a literal, you know, the only way you can be visible is by getting catcalled or whatever. And that, you know, so it's just that she doesn't believe that she's, um, she believes she's got a she wants to take up space and she believes that she has the right to take up that space and she's not ready to sink back into the into the shadows at all and she doesn't buy into this idea that she should or that other women are really either yeah. she believes it's a a cliche some sort of herd yeah. thinking yeah and it's more and well you're not just, looking it's the right a self place. it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy you know the more you it's a kind of this feedback loop of you know you say it then oh that's me being normal. Yeah. so it, it mm, she's uh, she doesn't buy into these things how do we encourage the stories that aren't part of the kind of sort of majority or cliche thinking oh, we write nuanced books <laughs> about them um, I guess is one you know you just Think properly. Um, think properly. Just think properly. <laughs> we have a question. Uh, this is a question for the performance, which is a real performance, a performance going on in uh, the bushfire outside, or is the performance on the stage, happy days, mm-hmm. or is it the performance going among the women? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the question is, you know, what's the performance? And that's the... That's the essence of the novel, all those things I wanted. So the answer is sort of all of the above. Um, There's quite, there's the literal performance of the play that they're watching, um, you know, this woman buried in a mound of earth on stage. They're all watching the same thing. Then there's just the, the notion of performing in life, you know, and to other people's view, but then also self performance you know, the ways in which you can, you know, and this comes back to this sort of idea of optimising, you know, this positive self-talk or negative self-talk or just the interiority and the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and then, yeah, there is this bushfire uh, hovering around the outskirts and 
of the of the city while they're in the theatre. Um, and in terms of the way that relates to performance, that's um, a more curious idea. But I think that these um, questions around uh, being stuck and 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 agency and capacity and who gets to have any um, capacity to affect something as profound as, as you know, a, a bushfire. So I, I deliberately wanted to kind of isolate these women in a bubble, uh, and that also has a lot of connotations. But one of them... Uh, so And the bushfires are a, a broader kind of metaphor for the climate crisis that we're just living in um, and how much people want to acknowledge that or stay in the bubble or try and get out of the bubble and, uh, yeah... I think that went way beyond your uh, question, but thank you for that question. Well, I wonder also the performance has been published in other countries yeah. and do you feel that's a way of getting outside the bubbles we live in Yeah, see that's, this shared struggle? Well, I mean, that's not... That's, and it's really interesting. Um, there, so far, it's, it came out in the US a month after it came out here and then a month after that it came out in the UK. Um, and already the, the American readers are responding to the book quite differently to the Australian reviews. So there's a real emphasis on the theatrical experience, that the, the, you know, the, the physical experience of sitting like we were, you know, in rows, that sort of intimacy, and because they're still um, not able to partake in that. Hmm. And, yeah, the, and the different languages is just going to be... It's a dream for me. I mean, I, I got sent a sample... Uh, of the Spanish translation, you know, and I just sort of looked and thought, wow, looks Spanish. Um, and yes, keep at it. I'm, you know, and, and just the idea that these incredible writers who are, you know, bilingual or however many lingual are engaging with the work. So, I mean, I know that's what translation is, but it, it is a very gratifying and humbling uh, aspect of this whole thing. Um, and the performance, the word, apparently, is is a tricky one to translate in the French. It doesn't... There's not a single word that has all the connotations of the English word for the performance. So it'll be interesting to see what the book's actually called in yeah, places. Yeah, something with a certain je ne sais quoi. Are uh, we? Oui. Uh, and <laughs> I heard there's an Arabic translation too. Was that... Yes. Well, that's... Yes, that's kind of early days, but Sorry, that is... Hush, hush. Um, yes, which is just amazing. Mm. Um, mm. And totally... Um, yeah, beyond what I would ever have imagined. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, were there any more questions, I wonder? Hi, this is for Rebecca. Hi. Hi. Um, I know you said your initial idea for the book was because you were interested in female spies, but this is such a weird, very beginning of the war mm. part of the, where the, when the story's set. Did you know that before or did you research and think, oh, my God, this is where my story is going to go? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't, I don't remember when I... I didn't know that much about the war before beginning. I was interested in it. I knew the basics, um, but I really didn't know very much about the intelligence agency either. So I went and read a lot of books about it and I discovered 
the con obviously they were doing work throughout this period, but this concentrated work that they were doing right at the beginning in the months leading up to the war. And then for that first year or so, the so-called phony war before there was any real kind of military engagement. And that seemed to me to be a really interesting period because I didn't know much about it, so I could explore a bit more. I hadn't certainly hadn't read very much in, in a fictional space about that. So, um, you know, there are a lot of books about the Second World War, um, a lot of novels. And um, so, you know, obviously you have to write what you're interested in, but you do want to kind of find a space that's a little bit different too. And... Yeah, I mean, what it, one of the things that I discovered that was so interesting, at least to me anyway, was that how disorganised the intelligence mm. agency were in the lead-up to the war. They still didn't really think there was going to be a war. They thought that there, that appeasement could still happen, happen or that Hitler could would negotiate. Um, and obviously there are a lot of other competing factors as to why, you know, they wouldn't want to engage in another war. But they hadn't really recruited um, any agents. So they kind of did this sort of you know, scrabble about to find people to recruit. Um, and they didn't even have an office space because, of course, you know, you still need to have an office. And so they had to move themselves from an office space right at the beginning of the war into a prison, what was still operating as a men's prison. So they still had prisoners. Um, there's a scene in the book where Evelyn turns up at, at the prison. It's called the Wormwood Scrubs. And she can hear the sounds of the male inmates fighting and being, you know, thrown back in their cell and... Um, you know, that she's warned not to walk down particular passages or, you know, I didn't, I don't think this is in the book, but I read about how female staff were told to wear sort of um, pencil skirt style dresses, um, not, not sort of, um, or even they were allowed to wear think, slacks because mm. if they walked up the um, stairwells, the open stairwells and the prisoners below could kind of leer at them and all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, hugely, hugely disorganised, but yet so much going going on um, behind the scenes. And to me, that was really, really interesting. That sort of um, yeah, but behind behind the curtain, to use the the performance space again. We'll keep did, milking it. <laughs> <laughs> did you always know you would set it in England? Did you ever think of Australia or another country in the world? Um, well, I I mean. You know, I wanted to go and have a research trip in London. Yeah. That's amazing, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, look, I, th I think it was always going to be in London, um, you know, poss possibly in Germany. But again, it would depend what the actual, you know, uh, historical events sort of dictated. So this was very much a story that took place right there. Um, uh, so... Yeah, and, and London plays such an important important role in this in the story. So I think it had to be had to yeah, be there. Chance yeah. to go to London. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Mm. Did we have any more? Oh, we do. <laughs> um, the refrain that's coming to me is from another Beckett play, I Can't Go On, I Must Go On, yes. from Endgame. Yes. And it seems to me it speaks to the stuckness that you're talking about and mm. also our contemporary reality and the climate emergency, which is the mm. impossibility of... I can't go on, I must go on. Yep. And I'm particularly thinking about that with younger people and younger women especially, and I just wanted to draw attention to Kathy Drayton's incredible film, um, The Weather Diaries, where she, which is a diary film. She's a Sydney essayist, um, essay filmmaker, mm -hmm. where she charted her the experience of parenting a young teenager 
through seven years, basically a diary film about Mm -hmm. how it is to go on in the climate emergency. Um, And teenage experience is already about surges of urgency and futility. That's what it is to be a teenager. Um, And how it is to sit in that that double surge of urgency and futility within climate emergency. There's so much. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way of putting it and I think summer is absolutely that 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 sense of um it's all so obvious to so the youngest character in my novel um summer she is very concerned about the world and the state that the world's in but she she, it's so it's self-evident so there's this exasperation about um the, the the lack of action and then, yeah, the futility that she feels herself and um, and how much to kind of take it on and how much to deflect it and how much, um, you know, she tries to be this sort of perfect citizen in a lot of different ways and as if, but she there's, there's also a part of her not, that knows that that's not really the point. You know, she can throw away her recycling perfectly, but it, it's not. That is one of the big questions. And I found that I taught a subject at Melbourne Uni for a long time about uh, literature in uh, the environment. And my students were so... uh, had absolutely would be defined by 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 the way that you just spoke then. I mean, just that, that the futility and the urgency that was that was them and they were they were smart they still are you know but they're very um inspiring and it's not these kind of pat ideas of hope which is often only for it's a luxury to have hope um but it's more real than that uh and and it is a constant presence yeah thank you All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It's much appreciated. Would you give a big round of applause? Rebecca Salford, Claire Thomas. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.